the shipping industry used to be invisible to us. It would leave the port and disappear over the horizon. We didn't worry about it. But the focus on the fact that we are major polluters is now putting a lot of visibility to what we all are willing to do to improve how we bring that, that pair of Nikes to your door. This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Orat is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. My special guest today is Brent Perry. Brent defined an industry when he oversaw development of the world's first battery for marine use. Energy storage systems are now a major and incredibly important player on the global marine energy scene. In the years since the first battery, he has become the world expert on lithium energy storage in marine applications and recently launched PowerSwap, a pay-as-you-go clean energy subscription service that can electrify marine vessels, terminals, ports, and even industrial sites and small communities. His 30-year history in commercial Shipbuilding and deep knowledge of energy system gives him a unique perspective on the hybrid and electric marine industry. Brandt has personally been involved in the great majority of large hybrid and electric ferry projects on the water today. Welcome, Brandt, to the Butterfly Effect. Thanks, Sally. So let's start with clean energy in the marine industry. Maybe even explain how polluting is the marine industry? Well... The marine industry is directly responsible for about 3% of the emissions of the world. But because we use fuels that tend to be very under-processed, like heavy fuel, it emits a terrific amount of the uh, particulate matter and the obnoxious gases and effects that can directly affect uh, climate change. And it does it in a way that sometimes is very directly uh, impactful. So ports where all the ships come and go from, tend mm-hmm. to be the single largest polluters in the cities that they're located in. Um, and then when you go offshore, all of these emissions that are being generated are greatly affecting the acidification of the oceans themselves, which of course is leading to temperature change, killing our coral reefs and drastically affecting the acidity and the temperature of the ocean at the same time. So while we're not necessarily the largest contributor to pollution in the world, we're certainly one of the most impactful. And by definition, one of the greatest opportunities to improve the environmental impact of an industry because we have been traditionally so bad for so long. So what are some of the ways to improve? Well, it it comes down to the pragmatism of a business that uh, I can say in in a single sentence The most important aspect of anything to do with shipping is that propellers must turn. Right. By focusing on turning propellers, we have created this incredibly large global infrastructure where 90% of your freight moves by sea. By not addressing the efficiency of that from a cost point of view and an environmental point of view, we've created a large opportunity to improve. So if we can reduce the emissions of the marine industry in operation by nearly 100% by 2050, we stand a, a very good chance to make not only a change in the environmental impact, but a very large change in the societal impact of shipping. And that can be as simple as healthcare costs. 
but everything is affected by what we do. And it's important to understand that when we plan on how we're going to improve the shipping industry. Well, you talk about 100%, 100% for me to think, thinking it's basically change everything, right? Yes. Where will you start? We start with a low-hanging fruit. Like when we've introduced energy storage into the marine industry, there were only really two uh, verticals within the marine industry that we could affect. And that was the ferry industry and the tugboat industry. And it's because both of them represent a unique profile of operation, if you wish, that we could identify with electrification to almost 100% electrification. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us to demonstrate that we could make these improvements, but also that the clients and the companies that own and operate them could make more money and be more successful. So in our world, the, the goal of reaching environmental goals and targets is really not the principal purpose of business. Returning value to your shareholders has been. And only in the last 10 or 15 years have we seen that shift to a more ESG-driven purpose of let's be good partners all around. When you consider that this is a financially driven industry, the best way to get them to adopt zero emission technology is to make it so that that improves their financial performance, doesn't add a burden to them and add risk to them as operators. Okay. And, and we talk about financial performance you're basically talking about replacing that. If we talk about turning pr propellers, we're talking about changing from from gas to electric batteries, right? Which is what you were doing. Yes, and and it goes beyond that now. So when I started initiating energy storage into the space, that was our hundred percent focus: is where would batteries work to replace or optimize fuel-driven engines. Mm -hmm. reduce their emissions or eliminate their emissions. And, and that worked quite well and still proceeds. It's just really beginning to be adopted globally. So we're seeing a huge expansion on that basic kind of business. Amazing. But what's evolved in the last seven or eight years in particular has been the concept of zero emission operations. So not zero emission in, in totality because it takes carbon credits to build materials and equipment. There's no getting around that right now. Um, but what we can look at is, can we operate these with a true emissions payback? So if it costs me a million tons of carbon to build a, a large-scale offshore vessel, how many years will it take for renewable solutions to pay that cost back so that that vessel is operating zero emission for the future and for the rest of its life? And so what we focused on now is we've incorporated renewable energies uh, like fuel cells and, and fuel reformers and solar and wind and geothermal into how we charge our battery systems and into how we create energy on board ships that can potentially replace fuel-driven solutions. We focus on optimizing fuels, so combining hydrogen with diesel to get a better burn and a more efficient use of diesel fuel and produce less emissions. Mm -hmm. The one thing that's it's both disheartening but pragmatic is that there's 400,000 commercial ships in operation today. We're not going to convert the entire fleet to zero emission operation by 2030. That's not practical and it's not possible. Right. But what we can do is develop the commercial solutions that inspire the owners of those 400,000 fleets and the governments that help manage the legislation of those 400,000 vessels to actually adopt what we do and the solutions that we can bring to the market because it makes financial and environmental sense for them. And then the legislation can come in that can say, all right, 
you're going to pay a penalty if you continue continue to be a, an emitter of of bad emissions. And if and then what you're also going to see is that combination of companies who want to be good partners to the environment as well, who don't want to hire shipping companies that are bad players. And they are looking for shipping companies that are working towards meeting a zero emission operations goal and can do it. And so they'll bring their freight and their business to it, even if that might involve a premium on the on that cost of shipping, because they want to be able to market to their customers who are buying the Nikes and the cars mm-hmm. that they have brought them to that dealership or that store with the lowest possible emissions profile. And so the great thing about what's happening globally today is the shipping industry used to be invisible to us. It would leave the port and disappear over the horizon. We didn't worry about it. But the focus on the fact that we are major polluters is now putting a lot of visibility to what we all are willing to do and physically doing to improve how we bring that that pair of Nikes to your door. And it seems like there is a solution. There are uh, some companies that want to take advantage of it. What are the obstacles? What's holding others back? Part of it's believability. So if you think about it, in the marine industry, a ship lasts about 40 years. When I introduced energy storage into the market space, I was a shipbuilder. As mm-hmm. a shipbuilder, if you hadn't been in business for 10 years, you didn't, get, you didn't qualify to be a supplier for me. So here I was then building batteries, which no experience in history, and asking the market to buy them without the same criteria that I established as a shipbuilder. Mm-hmm. So we had to work very hard to create the commercial validation of the product, partner with things like type approval agencies to gain their support and credence. And then I've, I've worked with nine different governments around the world in the last 12 years to help write the legislation that they need to adopt and incorporate to pace the introduction and adoption of renewable energy. So we've done basically 50 years of work inside of 10 years to become commercially credible in the marketplace today. And that's thanks, frankly, to the Paris Accord. If the Paris Accord didn't exist and that expectation of emissions and temperature management wasn't real, none of this would be happening, I believe, because the Paris Accord brought the societal and the governmental pressure to do something. And then people like myself and a lot of the other people associated with the industry said, okay, we're willing to take that challenge up and make things that actually meet those expectations. So it's it's a big circle of cause and effect, if you want. I love the name of your podcast, because the truth is, if you want to say in 2006, uh, I flapped my own butterfly wings on the concept of renewable energy in the marine industry. And if you look at the, the hurricane that's resulted of that, that's affected so many different countries and shipyards and, and operators in, in a very short 16-year period of time, it's pretty impressive uh, that it's actually gained the acceptance that it has today. Yeah, I, I t- totally agree. Now, just a, a question, and maybe it's just me not knowing enough on that, but I drive an electric car, and I know after a certain amount of miles or kilometers, I need to charge it. Now, having a big vessel on the road is different than having a big vessel on the ocean, and a huge ship probably needs much more than my tiny, but it's not tiny, but my battery, right? So 
you talked about a little bit about that green energy that supported but does it survive can it go through miles and miles across the ocean yes it can so when we first uh, were looking at how to use lithium energy in the marine industry the first thing you have to understand is the, is the problem you're solving and in the marine industry ships need to they go through a major survey or, or relicensing if you want every five years And so we knew that the energy storage systems had to have a minimum life of five years, preferably 10 years, with a payback somewhere in the two to three year range. Mm-hmm. That was a good rational economic justification for what we're doing. So we evaluated quite a few companies who are all lithium cell manufacturers for the quality of their product, the construction of their product, and the durability of their product to find partners who could support these applications. With the 90,000 hour life that is the expectation. And then we designed those systems around that to incorporate them to meet all of the environmental criteria of those vessels, the, the impact, the shock, the vibration, the temperature, the humidity, the salt, the weather, everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you marry the, when you marry up a, a, a technology with a pragmatic product engineering, then you can do anything. If you build something like that's just not suitable, Like your car batteries is great for a car, right? It's designed to go one hour in the morning and one hour in the afternoon. And it's using a lithium technology that will survive eight to 10 years before it needs to be replaced on that kind of basis. Mm-hmm. So they very much tailored your car battery to suit your, your driving habits. And in the marine industry, we do the same thing, except the driving habits are 24-7. So it's a harder environment to serve, but... Yeah, the all they are are different criteria to, to, to manage effectively and successfully we've done this many companies have done this today and the and the proof is in the escalating rate of rate of adoption that you're seeing around the world so they they charge at sea or do they have like charging station like my car both so yeah if you think about a car you can have a type 1 charger at your house and You'll find some type two and type three chargers at shopping malls and and to various locations. Mm-hmm. And they what they do is take away your range anxiety because nobody wants to think about running out of electricity on the side of the road. Yeah, a vessel does the same thing. and in, in small run ships where we're going from point A to point B within a couple hours, uh, we don't need charging infrastructure on the ship itself. We may have backup or emergency charging. But typically, there's charging stations on either side of that route so that they can charge when they land. And we design those charging stations to work within the, the schedule constraints of the vessels. So one of our favorite installations is in a vessel that runs between Denmark and Sweden. It does 46 trips a day. It has a 10-megawatt short charging station that puts a megawatt hour back into the battery in less than six minutes. Mm-hmm. And it just goes round and round and round for 350 days a year. That's a very demanding, maybe one of the hardest working batteries in the world today. But we sized and designed and engineered the battery to last, in this case, for five years before we have to take the old lithium and recycle them and put new lithium in and, and keep going for another five to seven years. Everything, as long as you understand the performance characteristics, is achievable. That ship going back and forth, probably making... less noise also, but affecting the wildlife. Do you notice that using those lithium batteries affected less the wildlife? You know, that is a, a phenomenal question. The 
There has been a lot of studies done to undertake the impact of the sound of ships in the water to sea life, especially here in the Pacific Northwest where we have whales up and down the coast all the time. And and diesel engines and fuel-driven engines definitely have a very negative effect on the sea life. The electric drives don't produce any any noise in the water. Uh, they're completely silent and vibration-free. So that's a very different medium. But to be perfectly fair, those studies that are going to justify the difference between what we do know about fuel-driven engine noise impact versus the lack of impact from electric, we don't know. There has not been enough volume of product in the water from what we do to and, and time to study that effect. But I think you will find that just by common sense, there's going to be a much less impact to the environment with a ship that doesn't require uh, something that's going to make a huge amount of noise and vibration in the water. Our, our hope is simply that by taking a sustainable approach to the engineering of our ships, making them as quiet and energy efficient as possible, we the vessels will be able to continue to perform an increased role in, in global society, but have a significantly reduced negative impact to global society. Just the noise, like when we built the first electric fish boat, just for the crew, you know, usually they were following at low speed and, and, and surrounded with diesel fuel environment while they were fishing and the vibration of the boat would cause a significant amount of stress in the people on board the boat, let alone the fish. Mm -hmm. And the first time we electrified a fish boat, you could work out on that boat for eight or 10 hours a day and come back refreshed because your lungs weren't basically covered with diesel soot from living in that environment all day. And you didn't have to worry about the vibration because there wasn't any. So the stress on, on the body was significantly less just for making those changes to the vessel. And I mean, I, I fished on that boat for two days uh, just to get the, an understanding of it. And it was a significantly better environment for the crew. So I can only imagine that what we're doing is creating a better environment for the sea life as well. Yeah. And you mentioned the Paris Accord, and I know that you were both at COP21 that was in Paris and COP23 that was in, in Bonn. What were you doing there? Well, one, it, it, it's, it's learning what other people are doing and the commitment people are making to environmentalism and to, the, uh, to global warming. And two, it's creating awareness. So at the Paris Accord, I had already installed over 100 vessels as hybrid and electric ships. And so I felt I was preaching to the choir, if you want, of an audience that was completely aware of what we're doing. What I discovered in, in, in my presentation there was a 20-minute uh, presentation where in the background I had just pictures of our installations. Only every, every few seconds an installation would pop up that we had made hybrid or electric. And I had a very educated audience that were very aware of all the issues we were talking about. So in one sense, I was preaching to the choir. On the other sense, I noted that how many people at the end of the presentation had their mouths hanging open because they, they had no idea that we had had that many installations already done. Mm -hmm. And even though it doesn't sound like much when you talk about 100 over 400,000, uh, you know, you throw a rock over the hill to start an avalanche. And, and so for me, the Paris Accord... And all of the COP events are the opportunity to launch those rocks to start to create the avalanche of both awareness and, and actual action. And, and we live in an age now where people have a very strong independent voice, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or any social media, LinkedIn, 
our words matter and they count. And so the more people we can touch with the truth of what we're doing, the reality, not mm-hmm. no hyperbole, no greenwashing, just what we're doing. Right. Then we feel like we're, we're arming these people with the knowledge to go forth and make change themselves. And it's going to take a lot of us to do it, but it's a, it's the only way this, that society works. Yeah. We all need to be butterflies. We do. Are you optimistic we can achieve our goals? I am actually the, in my world, I have a saying that comes across my computer every morning that says, see the invisible and deliver the impossible. And what I did 12 years or 14 years ago seemed impossible, but now we do it every day. And humanity has incredible capacity to adopt and change. What's going to drive that adoption and change is awareness. It is the, the, the butterfly effect. And so we all have an obligation as people who are involved in our society and our families to positively affect outside of politics and outside of government issue. This, this is not about politics or governments. This is about how we wake up every morning and what our grandchildren are going to inherit from us. And I think the more people we can communicate with and the more they see the, the change that is being done then it's much more likely that they can each contribute in their own way to that change as well. And then the momentum will add up. Okay, so you saw the impossible and you delivered it, or you saw the invisible and you delivered the impossible. Now it's possible. So what's the next invisible thing? The next invisible thing is to globally align all the countries together to work in cooperation with each other. So currently, the IMO, which governs offshore uh, marine applications globally, is the harbinger of rules and regulations and, and has been very slow to adopt and largely driven by the political control that has been in, within that organization for a long time. That has to change. The adoption has to change. And, you know, we, we sponsored a, a conference at the COP26 event called Ship Zero. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, I had uh, Michael Peters there, who is the head of the Poseidon Principle, which is a consortium of finance groups that are committed to environmental projects. He stood up and, and basically told the IMO representatives uh, and a couple of government representatives from the EU and the United States to either become leaders and help solve the problems or get out of way and let the let the industry and the finance groups do it themselves. I've never seen that happen before. It gave me a huge amount of hope that if you can bring the finance people into the solution for the right reasons of emissions reduction and greenhouse gas control, then we will drive the administrators and the legislators to work together in order for industry to survive and for society to survive. I think it's absolutely imperative. Yes. And COP27 is coming up next very soon, actually. Soon. Are you going to be there? Is there an agenda? Oh, absolutely. We are, we are going there. So we, because we've translated our business from an energy storage company into an energy solutions company, and we are now offering everything to our clients on a subscription basis, it's, it isn't really doing anything different, but we've moved the business model one degree to the right, if you wish. And what we're now promoting is rapid adoption. So take something like the Maldives and make it a zero emission operations chain of islands and demonstrate to people that this is possible. So 
our goal for COP27 is to bring physical, tangible, done examples to the world and show them what they can adopt as well and participate with other companies to do what we do because this is much bigger than my business. This is, this is something that's going to take an entire global industry to address the problem if we really want to see zero emission operations in place by 2050. So you will bring basically a test case which will present in a way a script for others to just, I, I yes. want to say plug and play, but not really plug and play, adapt and, and, and use on their own. Yes. That's pretty cool. Any advice you would give to others? Uh, be fearless. There, there is no cost to failure other than the lack of effort. So if you try, you will make a difference. If you make all the difference you can, other people will also make a difference. But the, the key is don't, don't wait for someone to come and bring change. Be a part of the change and 100% commit to it without concern of whether it'll work or not. I love it. Yes. You know, it's the emotional engagement that is absolutely the most important part of our success because we're, we're so much better at what we do and we want it to work than we are if it's just a job. Yeah. When it's coming from the soul versus it's coming yeah. because you need to. Yeah. You know, yeah. you need evangelists and, and I, I'm not too concerned with why you want to do what we do. Uh, but I, I do fully expect everybody to leave it on the table every day, every ounce of effort and energy they can bring because the change, the speed of change that needs to be adopted has to get faster and faster and faster if we're going to save how we live. And it's the people that, it's not me that's going to do that. It's the people that work for us and the people that work with us that, are, that all need to gain that level of passion if we're going to succeed. Yeah. And it's also, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning, you, you talked about Nike. Nike, it's that, um, it's also the consumers. So if I know as a consumer or an educated consumer that my pair of shoes is, is not sustainable all the way through, then I may go someplace else and create that uh, pressure on those companies to, to change yeah, but you know, so much of the impact that we live with every day is just because of exactly what you said. We did a, a study of how many times one of our power cables was shipped before it got to our batteries. At the average roll of cable in terms of its different layers of formation and shipping has traveled 25,000 miles before it gets to me. Wow. Now, if you want to improve the impact of shipping, globalization is not necessarily the right answer. Shipping parts and pieces to seven different countries before you put it into a final application, that's crazy. And it's the same with everything we do. If we just look at how can we positively affect the environment, it's not just battery technology. It's, it's a simple logistics of what we do every day. It is supporting uh, manufacturing where it makes sense. And it's also about equalization of manufacturing. You know, I've been to 116 countries in the last 37 years. I have seen some of the most horrid, terrible things that we are happy to do every day. And businesses make cognitive decisions to buy things in markets that people aren't treated well in as employees. And if we're going to survive as a planet, that stuff's got to stop, right? Going to Thailand or India 
or China to buy parts because they're cheap is the wrong reason to go there. Going to buy it there because it's better is the right reason. But measure the cost of the carbon of that part in the location that you buy and factor that into the impact it's going to have on your final product. And the other thing which drives me totally crazy is that companies that produce things have no ownership or accountability for how things are are finished and recycled and and thrown away. Mm -hmm. I've been to every battery recycling factory in the world, and I have seen the best and the worst of their processes, but I wasn't interested in being in this industry unless I could absolutely look somebody in the eye and say, this is what we can do with your product when it's finished. We're not going to throw it in the garbage. And if you make plastic boxes or you make shoes or whatever, I think you should have a sustainability plan of how that's going to be recycled. I was in a place called Port Blair, which is in the middle of the Southern Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. And I have stood on these pristine beaches that are champagne sand with water that is Caribbean blue. And all you see in the in the water is is pieces of plastic and garbage floating in from 1,200 miles away. And there's a meter of this garbage on the beach. If we're not willing to accept some accountability for all those things that are going to end up at the bottom of the ocean or on a beach or whatever, and incorporate that into how we think about everything we do, then we're not going to achieve our goals environmentally. Right. We're just going to make our problems worse. That drove me to research battery recycling technologies to the point where we've now found a partner in in the States of all places where they can recycle our batteries almost 100% to the same quality of material that we use going in. So they're fully reusable within my own battery structure. There's nothing negative impacted into the environment from them. We pour nothing down the drain. Uh, And when the final balance of 5 or 6% of the materials have gone through the recycling process and they are going to be thrown into a landfill, it's like throwing sand into a landfill. It's completely inert and non-impactful. You think about how much garbage we throw away and how that's not true of 99% of what we throw away. We, We really need to change. And I'm only bringing one aspect of that change by helping reduce fuel and, and pollution. But we all need to do this every day in what we do. Right. And I also think that f- you're doing it because in a way I will call it conscience, right? You have your environmental conscience that leads you and you do not mind that cost that comes with it. However, I don't know if others will see that as something that they're willing to do. And then this is where government or politics or laws come into place. And we know that when this comes into place, chances of it happening are very low. Then what do you suggest? What what can be done so others besides educating them and inspire them and hoping they will take the next or the leap of faith, right? You know, I hate to say it, but it's it's the reason that we've succeeded in batteries is you have to create a you have to create greed. So if you're asking human nature to gravitate towards the altruistic, you're being naive and you won't succeed. I, I'm very cynical about this. If you cr- give people an opportunity to improve what they're doing, but make more money or benefit somehow, that's what drives adoption. My favorite example is the Toyota Prius. Mm-hmm. nobody bought the Toyota Prius as an improvement on performance. They bought it as a statement of their conscience about the environment. 
Yet the Toyota Prius is a step backwards as a vehicle compared to an Audi S7 or something like that. And so if you want mass adoption, if you create the Toyota Prius and tell people to compromise their values, then you're, you're just not going to succeed. If you create the Tesla Model S or the Model E that both is sexier, fun and fast and a better driving car than what you can buy in a fuel driven car, then people will buy the electric car. That is electric is a byproduct of its performance and improvement. And so you didn't see Toyota set the world afire with electric cars. You saw Tesla set the world afire with electric cars. Yeah. For everything that we do, you have to appeal to the greed. When I did my first electric ships, you know, they had a payback of around four years, but in six years, they put $6 million of positive cash into that company's pockets. And that's what they did it for. They didn't do it because they felt like they should. They weren't dealing with their inner conscience at all. They did it to make more money. And that's what's driven the speed of adoption in what we do is I make more money for my customers. I'm very cynical about that, but unfortunately, that is what they buy it for. And that they get environmental benefit is truly icing on that cake. Yeah. So I don't mind, you know, whatever your rationale for making the decision is okay with me. If you do it for the environment, great. If you do it to make more money for your shareholders, great. If you do it for your grandkids, great. I want you to do it. But I know that if I want mass adoption, I have to make it so that not doing it is stupid. The first time I went to Shanghai was about 1984, 85. They had already built 12 lane highways that only had bicycles on them. You know, they anticipated cars. Mm -hmm. What they didn't understand was that by creating a car culture, they created an expectation of quality of life culture as well. What I like to call the microwave culture. People wanted the things in life that made their lives easier and better. As soon as you create that, you have to have a higher and better pay structure for people to be able to afford the product. And now your manufacturers want to sell it. So jobs have to generate better income so they can support it. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to be in a culture that only makes a hundred us dollars a month, you're never going to see real change to a better quality and a better life. But if you create that $10,000 a month um, expectation or that just commonality of, of life all around the world, then true, true competition does exist. True focus on impact can exist and legislation can actually support change. But if you don't create that society that is equally effective all around the world, you'll never see it happen. By the way, you mentioned at the beginning the electric cars, and I believe they had them in 19, I'm sorry, 1800s. We already have the electric cars, and they were used by, or at least meant to be used by women before uh, Elon Musk took over and, and made Tesla. But that technology and that car existed. It's just there was no adaptation. The market, I don't know if the market was not ready or there was no adaptation to it. So it's it's really interesting test case to see. It took us, what, more than 100 years to adapt? Yeah, yeah so many things. That's true. Like, so I'm a boat builder and a lot of, and I was a professional sailboat racer for a long time as well. And so many of the things that were innovations in the boating industry were designed back in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, but the technology to execute them didn't exist to the same degree it does today. Mm -hmm. 
So people are looking back in time and saying, that was a great idea. You know, Leonardo da Vinci created the helicopter, but he just could never build one. So as we become more and more capable on executing these ideas from the history books are coming back. We introduced this concept of power swap last year, where you take a battery off a ship and put a new battery on a ship. That was done in the automotive industry back in the 1930s. I have a video of it. Mm -hmm. We're not new at any of this. All we are is creating a better innovation of how it can be done. Yes, and adapting to it. So we just need to step on it, right? And make it a little faster. Tally, you would look at me and say, this guy is no smarter than anybody else. And it's 100% true. I am not. But what I have is a, a determination, if you want, to see the effect manifested in commercial sense. So I take the ideas and I apply them to my end user and their commercial use model. I apply them to the operators in terms of how do they do it every day. And then I apply it to the manufacturing and the development of the to make sure that the whole stream is cohesive, makes sense, and is practical. When it was funny, as a super yacht builder, I always used to say it was the willpower of 400 people against mine to get a vessel built on time. Everybody had a reason not to succeed. I had a determination to finish them on time. And I just said, I'm, I'm way more stubborn than 400 people will ever be. Everyone in my in our field, everyone who works doing what I do in any variety of different industries, we share those kind of characteristics, right? We're not willing to let it go. Yeah. And that's what's going to save our planet is uh, thousands and thousands of people like us who are willing to flap those wings and watch the effect and, and not just let it happen, but follow it up and make sure it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I just need more. We, we, maybe we need to educate people on how to become butterflies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. A little bit, we do. I always finish with asking my guests of their favorite tree. Now, a tree cannot grow in the water, even though there is one that grows in the water. I'm just curious, what is yours? Uh, my favorite tree is an oak tree. Uh, I'm a shipbuilder. So oak trees are intrinsic in the structure of building tall ships and and wooden vessels and they are even though they're land-based they they intrinsically are designed to work within the marine environment so i've always enjoyed uh, the relationship we have with them and and the history that they bring to the vessels that we use them in and i love the shape and i love how they grow and the way they sound when the winds are in the in their leaves wonderful wonderful thank you so much brent for Uh, sharing all this knowledge on uh, marine being green and inspiring us. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's, It's what you're doing is amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you everyone for joining me today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me and I hope you can join me next time. And remember, it only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change 